Hey there, I'm Daphna Chazen, and this is the Down to Earth PCOS Nutrition Podcast. On the show, we talk about managing PCOS using proven strategies, ditching diets for good, and balancing hormones naturally. Let's get to it. Down to Earth PCOS Nutrition Podcast. Today we're talking about IBS, digestive disorders, and issues like bloating, constipation, and diarrhea with my expert guest. Her name is Erin Judge, and you're going to love her. Erin is a registered dietitian and the founder of Gotivate, which is a virtual nutrition counseling practice for those with digestive disorders, including IBS. Erin is really a wealth of knowledge, and she shared some tips for improving gut health, reducing bloat, and treating IBS with a root cause approach. And she broke it all down for us in this conversation. We spoke about a variety of topics on this episode, including how to know if you have chronic digestive issues, the FODMAP diet, whether there are foods that can trigger IBS, as well as her take on food sensitivity testing, which is something that I get a lot of questions about. So I'm glad Erin was here to set the record straight on that. And we also talked about other topics related specifically to the connection between PCOS and IBS. You can connect with Erin, and I highly recommend that you do so and learn from her on gutivate.com. I'm going to link to it in the show notes below, as well as on Instagram or TikTok. She's at erinjudge.rd. All right, let's get into my conversation with Erin Judge. Erin, welcome to the show. I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So I've been looking forward to this conversation, not only because I struggled with IBS my whole life, but mostly because women with PCOS are very much prone to IBS. And I think everyone listening right now can relate to having some sort of a digestive issue throughout their life. And I want to specifically focus on IBS today because I think there's like not a good understanding of it. It's a term that's been thrown around a lot and it's a syndrome like PCOS. So there's different manifestations to it and a lot that we can go into today. But um, can you first introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are and how you ended up in this field. Of course. So my name is Erin Judge. I'm a dietitian. And I first got interested in IBS as a patient. I was diagnosed with IBS whenever I was in fourth grade. I was very young, took many years. And I was diagnosed, you know, at a time where there wasn't a lot of great information about IBS. And so I was sent on my way, went through puberty, went through teen years, went into college without any real resources for my symptoms. And as you know, I got older, they got a little better, but I still dealt with, you know, chronic constipation and these periods of really significant pain. And so in college and becoming a dietitian for another reason, that was the first time I actually ever heard about IBS from a kind of more clinical understanding. That's the first time I ever learned that there were things I could do about it. I was, you know, learning about the science behind the gut microbiome and and gut health. And I really began diving into all of that personally and got really excited about everything that I could, I could see happening, you know, in my own body and just in my own life. And with dietetics, you know, my first job was not in IBS. My first job was uh, more in the public health world. And I thought that's what I wanted to do professionally. But after a few years, I really came back to my love for digestive health, my love for the science, my love for IBS patients and what I had experienced. And I realized that I could start a practice that focused on that. And so I began educating on online and built my practice specifically for this population. And the goal being, you know, how can I help people who are at a stage where I was whenever I was young at that beginning stage to figure out what was going on and help them really get control of it before it got, you know, to 10 years without any results or just, you know, to a point where they're missing out on their life, which I had experienced myself. So that's kind of the long kind of twisted way that got me to where I am now. But now I run a virtual nutrition practice and we work primarily with IBS and digestive disorders in that population. Okay. That's a great story. And I'm assuming that a lot of what you've used to heal and get the condition under control, you're now teaching other people. Absolutely. Yeah. I think 
This is the beautiful thing, right? About dietitians and, and us having our personal experiences is I bring some of my own experiences. I bring my empathy and just my understanding of what it's like living with IBS into my practice. But I also have that clinical background and expertise to be able to help people who aren't just like me and be able to bring all the tools to the table because what I needed you know, may be different than what someone else needs. And so I'm really proud of the fact that I have my personal experience and, and what I learned. And I think the way that we approach IBS strategies is very unique in my practice because of my own experience. But what worked for me isn't going to work for everyone else. So we also have, you know, pretty big uh, clinical experience background and through mentorships and just keeping up with the research to help others. Like you mentioned, you know, IBS can manifest in so many different ways. And so we have a lot of tools in our toolkit more as a clinical dietitian, but the, the pairing of the two, I yeah. think it's a really beautiful thing that makes uh, the, the practice itself and the work we do so much more powerful. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like it took over a decade for you to get a proper diagnosis and you kind of got to that point almost on your own. I know when I've seen doctors in the past, the same thing kind of happened. Like nobody seems to want to put the IBS stamp on your symptoms and kind of tell you this is what you have. And I've heard from many doctors in my visits where they would say, well, it sounds like IBS, but that's kind of a loose term. We don't exactly know, yada, yada, yada. So like, can you talk a little bit about how is IBS diagnosed? Is it better now? Like what is going on with the criteria for diagnosis? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And it's it's very true because IBS research in the past 10 years has evolved so much. You know, we used to think IBS was primarily like a psychological disorder, right? Way back in the day, which yeah, is its own conversation. But it has evolved to where we now understand that there are some significant drivers of IBS. We know that there are you know, significant changes that happen in the body in terms of the gut microbiome and the gut-brain connection and more of a, a true, like we're almost at even the pathophysiology of that. So we're almost at a point where I think there could be even more significant diagnostic criteria that could even make it a true disease state and not necessarily a syndrome anymore. We're so close, but that was not the case 10 years ago. And so it's a messy conversation because di IBS is diagnosed based on symptoms. It always has been. And there's a big misconception that IBS is a, a diagnosis of exclusion, but it's not. It's actually not an, a diagnosis of exclusion. There is a, there's an algorithm that physicians will use, and that's what the governing bodies of medical care have, have decided on, where they do typically roll out, you know, first signs of colon cancer, like they look for red flags there. If they need to investigate, they should be rolling out IBD just from a very initial standpoint of looking for signs of inflammation, usually in the blood or stool. And then they should be rolling out um, celiac disease the same way, usually a blood test. And that's the only exclusion criteria that's needed unless there are significant red flags like presentation of symptoms over the age of 45, blood in the stool, significant weight loss and fevers. Those would be signs that they would do a colonoscopy or, or go into more further testing. So IBS is diagnosed according to symptoms, but the symptoms themselves do matter because the, the criteria has also evolved and has gotten a little bit more strict. So even like five, six years ago, the criteria was a little bit more loose and we saw a lot of misdiagnosing of IBS. And I think that's where that term, it's a loose term or it might be this really came into play because there was a lot, there was a lot fewer treatments for IBS. So people weren't using the diagnosis truly to you know prescribe a medication or, or go down that road, which now we need. And so I think the diagnosis is being used more consistently now, but the diagnostic criteria are that symptoms have, have to be present for at least six months. So they don't have to be every day, but like at least six months you've had symptoms. And that's really important because if it's fewer than that, then there could be a bug or something else that's going on. And then it has to be the presence of pain. Pain has to be present for an IBS diagnosis. And many are diagnosed without the presence of pain, which is not a true diagnosis of IBS. And that's where we might get into is POCOS the driver of constipation, right? Or is endometriosis the driver of constipation? Or is hyperthyroidism the driver of diarrhea or hypothyroidism the driver of constipation? Pain is very significant for IBS and a lot of treatments involve that. And then there's a change in bowel habits in some way. So either constipation and diarrhea or possibly a mix of both, but there has to be both of those kind of pieces together for the diagnosis. And so doctors should be taking that information and that's how they come up with the diagnosis, but they do not have to really rule out other things. 
which makes it a little tricky. (laughs) Yeah, that's how I've always heard it being treated or referred to as a diagnosis of exclusion. If it's not Crohn's, if it's not this, it's not that, then it's IBS. And we don't really have any good solution to it anyway. So what's the difference, right? So you mentioned the alternating between constipation and diarrhea. Someone did ask about that. Is that common? Can be. Usually there it's a constipation. If, if there's a cycle, more often than not, constipation is truly the, the root of it. And what we look for there is, is majority of time. So if you have truly mixed IBS, you should have about 25% of the time you're in constipation, 25% of the time, at least you're in diarrhea. What I see most often with alternating habits is that someone will have constipation or slow emptying for, you know, five or six days, and then a day of diarrhea where it's clearing out, Mm -hmm. that's the most common. And what may be stronger in someone's mind to say like, oh, well, I'm definitely having constipation and diarrhea. You like, usually you're thinking of the severe side, right? And so if you have constipation, but you're not really thinking of it as significant, or you may not be paying attention to your output every single day, but on day seven, you have diarrhea that puts you in the bathroom all day. That's not your norm. It's easy in in your brain to say, oh, that's happening all the time, even if it really isn't, or it's following a pattern. So I see that most often, and that is very common. And then there are some people who will have periods of both, which is a little bit more mysterious where they may have like a period of constipation and then it just switches completely over to like a period of diarrhea. And we even know like with life changes, this can happen for people. And that's a, again, an area that just is not well understood. It is so mysterious, but it can happen. Yeah. I know my IBS was the worst when I was in college and stressed and I could definitely see a a connection between what was going on in my life and my symptoms. Absolutely. And yeah, that's a good point of, you know, the drivers of symptoms. There are different triggers that are out there that can trigger different things. And so even that, if you have a presence of a trigger that you didn't have before, you know, that could change your bowel habits. And sometimes we always call it the pendulum, even sometimes treating you know, constipation could put you into diarrhea. Like if you kind of overdo it. Right. Right. And so the same is true with triggers where introducing a trigger that could cause diarrhea, maybe a small amount of that trigger may feel okay, but a large amount may not. And that can be diet, lifestyle, medication, supplement, everything, you know, can impact the gut. And so you're right. There's a lot of different factors that go into it, which is why I, I tend to not lean too much towards like what type of IBS are you or like, you know, because it doesn't really matter as much as it matters that you really know your body and that we understand how triggers work in the body, how gut function even works and digestive function works. And then we can tailor interventions and be able to give you more of a knowledge base that you can dig into to know how to alter things day to day. And I call that sort of the intuition of managing IBS because it's, Yeah, you're right. It's not just one thing or the other. It's kind of complex and sometimes will kind of flow and vary for each person. Yeah. Do we know what causes IBS? We know a few of the causes. So the mechanisms are being developed now, which means it's just basically what is actually going on to cause the changes we see. And I think once we have those fully identified, we're going to be able to find the causes of those. The most well-known cause is foodborne illness or viral infections. And we call that post-infectious IBS. So a bacterial infection or a viral infection, we're seeing a rise in that with COVID even. And so that that's brought up a huge area of interest and that's very common. And we have a good understanding even of how to treat that, how to address that, what goes on with that, because that's been developed. Stress and like childhood trauma and things like that, that's been looked at. It hasn't necessarily been pulled apart enough to know that that's a true cause, but anyone in clinical practice will tell you that it is a cause because we can kind of trace things back to periods of time like that. And then there's also a kind of immune activation component to IBS that we know is linked to infection, but there could be a role of possibly, you know, like with other autoimmune conditions, this kind of gene or, you know, genetic, if it's genetic predisposition or something that just gets switched, you know, gets turned on. And so there could be kind of a compounding double effect or or cause that's going on there. And then the same is true for like the microbiome piece of, you know, is it change? Like we know changes in the microbiome, antibiotic use, 
C. diff infection, you know, anything that we have to treat where we're treating and kind of wiping the microbiome out. We see this with like cancer treatments or really intense treatments. We see a, a huge shift there. And so they're still trying to understand, okay, well, is it that your microbiome was already maybe predisposed or, or your early childhood, you know, development of your microbiome was set to a point where all it takes is one disruption to then cause this that's still in development, but there's likely something going on there. So we see a lot of children who've gone through, you know, significant antibiotic use during childhood, growing up and developing IBS as they get older without any like big trigger, like a foodborne illness. Wow. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. You talked a little bit about stress and early trauma and things like that. Can you talk more about the connection between the gut and the brain? Absolutely. So over the past five years, we've really learned that the gut, and this is what we've known, right? This is why they thought IBS was a psychological condition in the past. The gut and the brain are directly connected through what we call the HPA axis. It's not that important to know what that is specifically, but it is a connection between our central nervous system and our brain and what we call our enteric nervous system and our gut. Our gut's our second brain. So that's a bi-directional, meaning the gut communicates with and impacts what's going on in the brain. And then the brain communicates with and impacts what's going on in the gut. And that can include everything from nerve sensation. So the, the nerves throughout your gut sensing movement and then communicating that back. And then the brain altering motility and how things are moving. The brain and the gut kind of work together to communicate when to produce stomach acid and bile and different secretions that are involved in digestion, nerves, in the rectum and the anus are communicating when stool is ready to be released. And the, the brain is involved in that function connected to the muscles. And then we also know that mood and kind of ne the neurotransmitter side, the brain produces those, but also your gut microbes are involved in producing those as well. So gut microbes are involved in modulating mood and how you feel in those sensations. And then there's also probably a hormonal component to that as well, because hormones are kind of like with the, the, neur the neurotransmitters yeah. right, as communicators. And so there's this, this connection. And then the vagus nerve goes alongside that HPA axis. It's our longest kind of cranial nerve. And so that nerve itself is also really intimately connected to this communication. And with IBS, what we have found is that there's an, a disconnect in this communication. So it's not that there's, it's broken. Like if there's a vagus nerve damage, that's kind of what we call almost like a broken connection in a way. And that is very real that can happen. But even without damage to the vagus nerve, there can be this disconnect where signaling is off. And so it's almost like an over-communication where the brain is like over-communicating to the gut. That's where we see the presence of pain. That's where it really comes from is, is what we call visceral hypersensitivity where those nerve sensations, you know, we feel something coming through the gut, that uh, sensation is communicated to the brain. And then there's an altered pain signaling response where the brain communicates now pain that someone's experiencing that they should not be experiencing. And then we know with IBS, there's also an increased risk of depression and anxiety and could be linked to certain bacteria or microbes in the gut. So it's a very fascinating connection that's still very young in, in the understanding and the research, but it's, it's not a psychological problem necessarily. Mm -hmm. It's a true gut brain problem, meaning right. the connection itself and the function is disrupted. And that's where triggers of stress become really important, but also kind of the, I call it the kind of the messy web of gut brain, which is where your, your brain and what's happening there. So stress and even hyperfixation, meaning always thinking about your symptoms, trying to figure it out. Even you may notice symptoms get worse the more you're trying to figure out what's going on. That's kind of that hyperfixation component that mm -hmm. can make those sensations much stronger and much worse. But we also know that what happens in the gut can lead to a lot of that. So some stress and anxiety can be contributed to what's going on in the gut, not even starting in the brain. And once you're in the cycle, it doesn't really matter what came first. You have to address both in order to get full control. And, and that's something that people tend to miss, I think, because they think like, oh, well, I don't need to work on my brain. It's like, well, you don't have a choice at that point because they're going to be impacting one another. And so even if you don't feel depressed or anxious or, or whatever, there is still something going on that needs to be addressed and it has to come from both ends. Yeah. So I've seen you do breath work and do things like that, that are, is that related to, to that? 
Absolutely. Yes. We call it nervous system regulation, where we really focus on calming the body because we know that whenever the, the nervous system is in what we call more of a rest and digest state and your, your body's in that more relaxed state, we're able to kind of turn down some of that signaling and that allows there to be less of an intense communication. So it allows the gut and the brain to get kind of on the same page mm-hmm. and communicate more effectively. The same is true for sleep, you know, helps both ends of it and the way that the, the nerves and, and everything is, is connected. And then what we say, stress management, meaning setting boundaries, mindfulness, taking breaks, you know, communicating your needs, like emotional regulation, all of that can really impact what's going on in your gut because it is impacting kind of how heightened or not that connection is. Yeah, it's not talked about enough, I think. And it's really important. Can you talk a little bit about what's normal or if there's like a gold standard when it comes to poops? Like, is there Um, something that we should all be striving for? What are some of the things that you look for when you see clients? Yeah, that's a great question and a very debatable question, which is funny. And so oh, it's really? a controversial okay. question. If you ask like the science community, you know, in medicine, they'll say, you know, three bowel movements a week to up to three a day would be normal. I always say, especially those who have dealt with symptoms in the past, what we're working towards is at least one bowel movement a day. <laughs> very okay. few people have, you know, had less than one bowel movement a day and felt great. And I think that's right. the, the big side of it. But with that one to three bowel movements a day, is considered normal. Some people go three times, some people go one time and and that's okay. Everyone's different. That's impacted by what you eat and your motility and, and just a lot of different factors, even your lifestyle and things you've done in the past. The way that you should be pooping is that, you know, it should take less than five minutes, ideally closer to around three minutes. So it should be pretty quick it should pass pretty easily. So there shouldn't be a lot of work involved with passing a bowel movement. And then when you pass a bowel movement, it should feel fairly complete and there should be a decent amount of volume released. So I always say, you know, it should feel kind of the bottom of the toilet bowl, like a tiny little piece of stool is really going to feel very satisfying, especially if you're going one time a day. If you're going three times a day, that stool might be a little smaller and your output could be smaller. But even with that, you should feel fairly complete. Some signs that you aren't completely emptying would be bloating. That's a big one. Feeling like you still need to go. So that feeling like, oh, I need to go to the bathroom. Like you're kind of feeling that urge to go, but nothing's coming out. That's a sign that there's still there that's not maybe passing or releasing as fully as it could excess gas production. So if you're someone who's like very gassy all day, like gas is normal, even a little bloat is normal, especially after a meal or by the end of the day when you've been eating all day, but you shouldn't feel just gassy and bloated and uncomfortable and full all day long. That that's not normal. And you shouldn't feel that way. And then whenever you are releasing your stool, the form of it matters as well. And that kind of comes with the ease and comfort of passing. It should be fairly formed. There is, I think, a misconception about how it needs to be perfect. And we use the bristle stool chart, which will say like the long, smooth snake is like perfect. And, And it is great, but you can have looser stool and still feel okay, but you shouldn't have to wipe, you know, 50 times, right? There shouldn't be a huge huge mess that you have to clean up or leakage or staining on your underwear, you know, because things didn't fully get cleaned off. Like those are signs that like, okay, things are probably not formed as well as they should be. And you definitely shouldn't have, you know, very hard poop that like is painful or really difficult to pass. And you shouldn't have liquid stool that is just kind of coming out everywhere. Right. Extremely messy. Those would be the signs that, okay, something's not going right in terms of the form. And then with your urgency to go, it shouldn't be so loud that you feel like you definitely can't make it to the bathroom. You should know that you need to go. Like there should be a little bit of a, oh, okay, it's time to go to the bathroom. That's healthy. But feeling like, oh no, I can't go or like sweating and having like a big, you know, physical response to needing to go to the bathroom. That is not normal. And then the color of your poop as well does matter. Like anything along the brown color spectrum is normal. Black is not a good sign. Colors don't always mean something bad, but if you're constantly noticing colors in your poop, then that's something that we want to be kind of thinking about and concerned about. And then obviously red is a big concern because of the possibility of blood. It's okay to have like lighter brown stool and darker brown stool. Not a big deal as long as you're on that spectrum of brown. 
Okay. You covered pretty much all aspects of it. Yes. <laughs> it's a lot to poop, right? Yeah. You, yeah, should, no, you should be looking at your poop. Maybe not every moment of every day. It's helpful to know kind of what's yeah. going on and see if there's any changes, because sometimes that can be a sign of like, oh, something's going on that may need to be addressed. Okay. So someone asked the million dollar question, where do I start if I want to reduce my IBS symptoms? So let's get into that. Great question. And there's so many places you could start, but if I'm thinking the most generally, I would say sleep and and routines. One of the most less talked about areas of digestion are routines and what we call circadian rhythms. And that is kind of the rhythms that your body wants to be in. So that's where mood is regulated, the way that you sleep, your energy levels throughout the day, hunger and fullness is regulated that way. Your hormones can be regulated that way. Even blood sugar can kind of come back to that. But your digestion is also meant to work on that cycle. It's why many people poop at the same time every day. Like we have this kind of cyclic pattern to our digestive system that's meant to happen. And so if you're sleeping inconsistently or your routines are all over the place, meaning you're eating sporadically, you're waking and sleeping sporadically, you're kind of all over with with your, your days and there's not really a pattern going on that can impact the way that your gut moves. So your motility, but it can also impact all those little secretions and communications and everything that's meant to be happening. And so it's working against you. It's not causing your IBS, but it's definitely going to work against you. And that's a really simple thing to work on to be able to have better food tolerance, better motility, better pooping, all of that. So I like to start with sleep because that's the best regulator of your circadian rhythms because it's light and dark cycles. And so you want to have a pretty consistent bedtime and wake time every day as much as you can within about three hours of a window. So we want that to be pretty consistent and you should research does support seven to nine hours of sleep every night. And the quality of sleep is a different conversation, but simply starting with trying to improve the quantity of your sleep and see if you can get closer to that seven to nine hours and then have that consistency with your wake and sleep schedule. That alone is likely going to make you feel so much better and help regulate kind of the motility. And then you can start building in more, you know, routines with your movement and your meal times and things like that, which would follow. Okay. So that's great. And routines are great for so many different things, especially yes, yes, with food and kind of regulating hormones. And like you said, sleep, Mm -hmm. mood, energy levels, all of that stuff. Plus, you know, when you get into routines, you essentially establish habits. So exactly. Yeah. So that's, it's the, the missing piece that no one really thinks about. And I think sometimes people may roll their eyes. You may be doing that listening to this. I, I've, I've seen that. But whenever I get in and really start assessing sleep for people, it's usually not, not routine and it is inconsistent. And we can't ignore the data that we have and even gut brain connection. It's all related to sleep. And, and that's something with even my clients that I've worked with, whenever we have taken the time to really set up routines with sleep, they feel so much better and things work out and it, it improves. And it's the the secret piece that I think isn't a sexy, but it, it really can make a difference. And it is a sacrifice for people, but it's definitely worth it if you want to feel better. Yeah. Okay. Can we talk about food triggers? Are there foods that are known to be triggers of IBS symptoms? And I'd also love to get your opinion on food sensitivity testing. Yeah, that's a great question. So we know that food as of now, does not cause IBS. I think the one caveat to that may be, you know, food can impact the gut microbiome. And so food patterns over time could possibly predispose or be a big factor to IBS in terms of the fiber poor diet, but food alone isn't necessarily causing it. So when we talk about food triggers, these do not cause IBS and they really are triggering because What is causing IBS isn't being fully addressed, meaning the gut microbiome, the gut brain communication, that immune activation that I talked about, and even just motility itself. So I always like that caveat because I think we spend too much time focusing on what foods to modify or eliminate, and it may not work very long for you if you're not addressing the other pieces. And that also will feed into the food sensitivity conversation. But we do know that there are some foods that can be major triggers. Some that you, I mean, that seem obvious would be 
alcohol, which is a okay. food. If you want to call, you know, drug substances and drugs, uh, food, you know, that would definitely impact the gut itself, but alcohol does impact the permeability of the gut, that integrity of the gut and can impact gut microbes. So it's a huge one, high fat foods, high fat meals, especially saturated fats, which we see in kind of more of our animal products. You don't have to cut out all animal products, but those can really impact motility and digestion and especially IBS. And then we see fermentable carbohydrates as huge triggers. And this is where the FODMAP conversation comes in. If you've ever heard that term before, these are fermentable carbohydrates and they are smaller chain carbohydrates that are malabsorbed or poorly absorbed by the body. So that means instead of being absorbed into the small intestine, like most nutrients are, they make their way to the colon and our bacteria ferment them or caught and cause gas, which is a good thing, but can lead to problematic symptoms. And they can also pull water into the gut. They have what we call an osmotic activity. And when a lot of water is being pulled into the colon, that leads to bloating, that leads to discomfort, that can lead to diarrhea. And because of that pain sensation that people with IBS have, it can lead to a lot of pain. And so that, that's a, a big factor. And then there's some new research suggesting that these carbohydrates may also activate this immune response, which leads to these immune-like symptoms and even more IBS symptoms and could possibly in some cases favor a uh, a dysbiotic or a, an unideal microbiome environment. So there's a lot that can go on with these FODMAPs, which are the most talked about common triggers. Okay. So if someone is taking care of their gut mi microbiome and eating a diet that is high fiber, they would likely consume a lot of those FODMAP foods, exactly. right? Yeah. So FODMAPs are found in carbohydrates only, meaning plants and mm -hmm. dairy products. So okay. lactose is one of our uh, FODMAPs, but all the other FODMAPs are found in fruits and vegetables and they're found in fruits and vegetables and grains and, and legumes that are incredible for the gut. So they're not necessarily bad. And I think that's a, a good conversation, but they can be triggering. And so with anyone with IBS, you know, if you are responding to food and especially these foods, which really should only be determined by a dietitian because it's complex. And, and, you know, these foods are not as simple as you may think they are wide range and it doesn't necessarily make sense even looking at a food list. And so if you're responding to these foods and having symptoms in relation to them, typically modification is needed over full exclusion, meaning we can simply reduce the amount or spread them out or kind of figure out what we're pairing them with and reduce your load. And that will usually improve the symptoms. So you can get the benefit from the components of those carbohydrates that feed your gut really well, but then also reduce your symptoms related to those foods. And that's really true of all triggers, except alcohol, you know, because alcohol does impact gut permeability right away. So it's one that, you know, we may work with if you want to have alcohol in your life, but it's not necessarily one that you would like tolerate well mm -hmm. over time. Yeah. And then you asked about food sensitivities and kind of the other role of this food sensitivity testing is not validated. There is some new research that showed that a specific type of food sensitivity testing did improve IBS symptoms, but the test that was used is used in research. It's not even the same as the over-the-counter kind of direct to consumer test. Those are, have been proven to be inaccurate and misleading. And especially in cases of IBS, the food intolerance and food sensitivity piece is likely driven more by, again, those big markers of IBS and food sensitivities, you know, identifying what foods you might be sensitive to, even eliminating those foods does not fix the problem. And the same is true of FODMAPs. FODMAPs can possibly contribute to the problem. Like new research may show that, but it's not the only contributor. And so if we simply eliminate foods that came up on a food sensitivity test or even FODMAPs, what we may find is that as we try to bring those foods back, you know, if your symptoms get better, if we did nothing in between, you're not going to feel better. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times those tests can be expensive. We know they're not reliable. And so you may end up frustrated. Maybe you feel a little bit better in your elimination, but then you don't know where else to go. And then after, you know, a month or two, just like what would happen with FODMAPs, if you haven't addressed other contributors or those, or those drivers and kind of causes of IBS, 
you're going to feel bad again, right? Because the symptoms are still going to progress, even though you reduced maybe one of the triggers that are present. So I do not recommend food sensitivity testing. And there's no like FODMAP testing either in terms of something you can buy that tells you there's breath testing that's recommended by some companies, but it's not validated. It's not proven to be accurate. So it's really not worth a lot of money and time because it just may lead you more confused and, and, and frustrated versus with, again, those tools that are actually going to help you understand your body better. Okay. So I want to go back to FODMAPs and make sure everyone listening to us understands exactly what it is. So with IBS, this is kind of like the go-to recommendation, right? To try a FODMAP or a low FODMAP diet, which means you're eliminating or reducing the amount of some of these fermentable carbohydrates, which are found in foods that are, like you said, perfectly healthy for the most part. So the intention is not to eliminate them for life. It's really to take a break, see if symptoms reduce, and then work on other things while the person is eliminating some of these FODMAPs and then reintroduce them, right? Correct. Yeah, that's exactly correct. So it works in three phases, actually. So that that's phase one. You eliminate and we work on other things. Ideally, we're working on a lot before we even eliminate because it's the even the diet itself has only been shown to be effective for around 70% of those with IBS. And so it's not going to work for everybody. And we typically will know that. Again, a well-trained dietitian will know that before we even get into it. What are those things? Is that the nervous system regulation and the other things that you mentioned? Yes. Nervous system regulation, the routines that I mentioned, even improving nutrition, maybe fiber modification, Mm -hmm. addressing motility. And that may include certain treatments, depending on certain cases, like some people may have a bacterial overgrowth that gets treated, or some people may have, you know, some stuff going on with constipation that needs to be addressed that we do is like a bowel retraining is what we call it, where we get the bowels moving and that typically will improve symptoms, or we may need to fix a problem in terms of motility or elimination, like a pelvic floor dysfunction could be present. So yeah, there's a lot of things that we'll do there and just normalizing patterns is really a big factor in that. And again, improving nutrition, like nutrition should be improved before we eliminate anything, because again, if we're not feeding the gut well, and if we're not giving the body what it needs to even function, it's not going to work. And so eliminating foods can kind of be a missing point, but you're right. we, We do all of that before, as well as during elimination. And then phase two is where we challenge each FODMAP group. So there's a pretty standard kind of a process that we follow where we we determine your tolerance levels. And that's a snapshot of this point in time that can improve over time, Mm -hmm. come back to, but that's a really important stage because that's where you find out, okay, do any of these actually trigger and in what amounts? And then phase three is where we actually build the FODMAPs back in. And that can take a while depending on the person and how long, you know, they have been eliminating these foods and just where their gut is at at that point in time. But the goal is to really build these foods back in, in a way that is tolerable based on those results. So it's really individualization and personalization to be able to see the results you want. And and you're right that that is, that's really the, the main diet approach to IBS that's been studied. It is very effective. 75 percent of patients see huge improvement in symptoms, which is significant, but it's not for everybody because it is a restrictive. It does take a lot of time and it doesn't work for every person. And so there are some other approaches we may use where we do a modified approach of that, meaning we just personalize it to the person of, of just switching a few foods. And sometimes that will work. The Mediterranean diet, which I know is used some in PCOS as well. It's used kind of with everything that's been fairly well studied and is an area that's getting studied even more for IBS and it's being shown to be really effective. And so we, we use a version of that in our practice, but that's something that might be used more in, in the future as well. So there's a lot of different approaches that we can take, but the low FODMAT diet is kind of the, the, the biggest one. Okay. And we should say nobody should try to do this on their own. You always need the guidance because first of all, it's complicated. There's a certain order to it and a certain regimen that you need to follow. Not to mention, you'll likely run into a lot of nutritional deficiencies in your diet if you try to do it on your own because it is eliminating a significant amount of foods. Yes, 100%. And there's a lot of data on that as well, where we see a decrease in nutrient intake as well as even shown deficiencies through lab values before a low FODMAP diet, you know, just with IBS, but even with a low FODMAP diet. And there's also a fear component that can come into play. And I think it's an area that's getting talked about more these days, which is good. 
but specifically for, you know, IBS, if you've had symptoms to food, you may not be someone that has a really high fear of food or, you know, anything that's going on right now. But whenever you start eliminating foods, and especially if you do see symptoms decrease even a little bit, that can create a lot of fear that can easily cross over into a line that works against you. And you may find yourself stuck or even eliminating more and more and not realizing fully what's going on until quality of life has been impacted where you're not able to go out to eat with your friends or you can't cook meals for your whole family anymore. You, you know, you won't travel like that starts to creep in. And it's something that you may not even see the warning signs of until Mm -hmm. it's kind of too late. And when you're in that stage, it is very hard for us to get the results that we could have gotten if we had done it properly kind of with some guardrails in place to prevent that fear. So there's a lot to it that may not seem as clear on paper. And, and it's frustrating because, I mean, if you look at marketing around, you know, products from the low FODMAP diet, it's like there are books out there. There's a great app by the people who created it. That's phenomenal. And those are some amazing resources, but they're not going to take you through all of that extra information that you may need. And your doctor may even recommend it without even thinking twice, right? They may just hand you a piece of paper. Right. And so you're kind of set up for failure in those cases because no one's telling you what could happen, which can be really, really frustrating until you're already in it and then figuring it out on the back end. So yes, you're right. And if you can find good guidance through it, then that's the way you want to go. Or just make sure you have some guardrails somewhere put up in your life to be able to make sure you are moving through it properly. You're checking in with your, your mental health, with your life and what's happening with that. And kind of keeping those priorities in check to make sure that you don't end up somewhere you don't want to be. Okay. Yeah. That's good advice. Many women with PCOS struggle with diarrhea, loose stools, and some women are also taking metformin. So there's definitely a connection there. I was wondering if you have any tips about that, anything that you can share to help ease, because like you said, that's something that can really impact someone's quality of life majorly. What are some of the things you would recommend? Yeah. So that's a tricky one (laughs) because there's so much, I would say like just looser stools, especially, and even like constipation, whenever it's not on the severe end where it's true diarrhea and you can't leave the bathroom or significant constipation where you're not going for five, six, seven days at a time, typically fiber modification is the, is the route that we go. And it's a good starting place after like routines And so with loose stool, adding more fiber that's soluble can be really helpful. And that could be oatmeal, adding oats. That's a fantastic option. Chia seeds that are soaked can be a good option. From a fiber supplement standpoint, psyllium husk fiber is very well researched for diarrhea and constipation. And that can be really helpful for adding more form to stool if it's really loose. So that's a good starting point. And then on the constipation side, you know, you can get into more fruits and vegetables or flaxseed or a little bit more of those Mm -hmm. fibers that can definitely help with like supporting that a bit more. And then that's personalized to each person more in practice, but it is a good starting point to try to try to kind of work against some of those effects that may be going on. Okay. Someone also asked about the dairy intolerance and he said, is it possible to heal my dairy intolerance? I've heard that improving gut health can help. Yeah. So the biggest trigger in dairy is lactose. It's the sugar in dairy products. It's a FODMAP. So that's a hard conversation because it isn't, it isn't possible to improve your tolerance to lactose simply by improving motility, improving the gut itself and like gut integrity in the microbiome. However, lactose intolerance is something that many Americans experience and can also be due to other things, including aging. So a lot of us reduce our ability to break down lactose as we age. And so lactose is one that I do see some people struggle to regain a lot of tolerance to because there can be another factor of it. The good thing is that we can sometimes utilize like a lactose degrading enzyme called lactase, which is in the product lactate, but you can find mm-hmm. it in many different products and that will help break down lactose or using lactose free products will help at least enjoy the value of dairy products. If you like like milks or creams or sour cream or whatever it may be, and many cheeses are lower lactose. Now, the other side of dairy is that some people do have issues with dairy beyond lactose. So some people do have struggles with breaking down even lactose-free or lower lactose dairy products 
that could be related to the fat component to it. There's some thought that possibly like, you know, dairy, we call, I always call it the middle fat, right? Where it's like, not as far as like our not so helpful fats, like what we see with our meat products, but it's also not necessarily healthy fat, like with our, you know, olive oil, avocado oils, you know, fats like that, nuts and seeds. So it's kind of in the middle. And so for some people, even that level of fat intake may possibly impact their motility. We see that a lot with constipation, but there's not a lot of great research about that yet. Mm -hmm. And I know there's also some, you know, conversations in the other worlds about like inflammation or the impact on hormones. And it's like, obviously there's some individualization to all of this that maybe we don't know yet in science, right? We haven't fully figured out what's going on or, or what it is that, that that's happening. So I would say there's some complexity. What I've seen in practice the most is that yes, improving the health of the gut can improve tolerance to especially lactose and dairy containing products, but it doesn't always get us to a place where it's hundred percent and so finding alternatives or kind of working more to figure out what works for you is really important because it, it may not. And, and I, I'm very intentional in my practice about not using the word heal for a lot of things, because I think it can feel a little misleading because there's so much we still don't know. So we can improve so much, but even with the gut microbiome, there's a lot of research that suggests that we can't actually get back lost diversity, even from generations. So th there's a lot to it that I think it is, it is just a little bit deeper than that. And I think dairy probably fits into that conversation where there's probably a lot going on that we may not be able to fully address, but maybe. Okay. <laughs> what about probiotics? So you talked a lot about the yes. gut microbiome. How do you feel about supplements in general? Are there ones that help with IBS and specifically probiotics are a hot topic, right? Everyone's talking yes. about it and there's so many types. Give us your take on it. Yes. So supplements have been studied for IBS, not as well as they're marketed. A lot of the supplements marketed are not studied for IBS and can be again, misleading. The most well-studied supplements would be peppermint oil, which is what we see in the product called IB guard. It can definitely help with pain and like calming the gut muscles. I will say no supplements are a fix. They're not, they don't address like what's causing it. They really are supportive, just like a medication and some come with side effects and rarely, I've never seen a supplement ever take away all symptoms. So it's, it's not something I use often. I would personalize mm -hmm. it, but IB garden peppermint oil definitely is effective for IBS and we know it can work. There are some other herbal blends that have been studied. The brand of the, the most common one is called Abirogast. It's a, an herbal blend that has also been well studied to reduce pain and kind of calm gut muscles and help with motility. It has some liver side effects, so it's not used too frequently. Mm -hmm. Fiber supplements have been studied a lot and that's where psyllium husk comes into play and has been extremely effective for IBS and that's been very well studied. It's in Metamucil, right? That's what Metamucil is? It's in Metamucil, yes. Oh, okay. You can also find it outside of Metamucil. So we typically will recommend it outside of that just because there's other ingredients for like the stabilization and, and flavor of it. In oh, okay. So I usually like to kind of make it our own and use yeah. a lot of orange juice if you need to. But it's not for everyone, but that one can work really well. And then and the peppermint inside. oil, I just want to go back to that. Is that in the oil form or was that in a capsule? It's a capsule. So the encapsulated matters because it releases it into the small bowel and the large bowel and helps calm those muscles. Mm -hmm. And so typically, I mean, you have really intense stomach acid that's kind of neutralizing a lot of things that come in. So if you just take peppermint oil or even peppermint teas can feel good, but they're not necessarily going to make it to the gut in really large doses. And so there's like IB guard is a dual capsule. There's two kind of capsules of it, a major oh, capsule. Okay. And then there, the little beads are encapsulated as well. And that releases directly into the, the intestines to calm those muscles. And so that can be really effective and has a lot of good research behind it. And it's safe, which is nice. Enzymes have been studied a little bit, mostly for like lactose, like the lactase enzyme I mentioned, but broad spectrum kind of enzymes or, or more mixed enzymes haven't been as well studied. And then with probiotics, they have been the most studied. Research is highly contradicting. So really? research yeah. is not consistent. And the problem with that is that there are many different strains of bacteria or microbes that can be used in a probiotic. Like if you even get down to like the very specific strains, there's so many combinations that 
can be used. And so research hasn't necessarily replicated well specific strains of bacteria or probiotics that could be used. And so we're not seeing a lot of consistencies because they're not using the same blends, the same amounts, mm-hmm. the same strains. And so it's it's not well done. Also, we know that each human being has a very different microbiome. And even within IBS studies, we see different types of diversity or kind of different mi- microbial profiles between some different types of IBS. And so likely in the future, there could be more of like a individualized probiotic recommendation. It's being studied in a clinical setting in terms of, of research with like rat models. They are using kind of probiotics therapeutically with benefit. But on the market right now, we just don't have that. And so there, even the two, there's two governing bodies in the United States for GI clinical practice, and they take research and determine clinical recommendations and the strength of those recommendations. One practice would say yes to use probiotics with caution and low evidence. One body says don't use them at all because the evidence is too low. So even that shows you how much controversial, contradicting information that's out there. In my practice, probiotics are fairly safe. They do tend to come with side effects. So I will never use them right out of the gate. Like I I don't Mm -hmm. use them very often. And when I do, I try to use the small amount of evidence that we do have to help patients with maybe up, you know, if they have 10% of symptoms left, right? If, If we're trying to get through that last little hump of symptom recovery, then we may utilize a probiotic to see if that will help. And and kind of as a a shot in the dark in a way with like very limited evidence, but yeah, you'll see probiotics recommended. And I think the idea that probiotics are the secret to restoring even gut microbiome diversity, that's not true. It it hasn't really been proven. It's likely not where things are going to go, but there could possibly be a role for that in the future but in a more targeted way than it is right now. And and that's a good segue into microbiome testing. Also not validated. Any of those microbiome mapping type of tests that are out there may have good reasoning behind them. They may provide little bits of helpful information, but they're not accurate. They've been proven to be inaccurate. And even looking from a clinical research standpoint where they have the best tools available, even those tools aren't fully there yet. And so mm-hmm. those direct to consumer things are not. And so even if you are told that you're getting, you know, a specific probiotic recommended based on like your microbiome, it's not true. And so it doesn't exist yet. And even some of the, the probiotics that are out there, they may make you feel good. And if they do, that's amazing. Use them. Is it a placebo? Is there something really right. going on in there? Maybe, but we just don't know what it is yet to be able to say with confidence that it's something worth putting your money and time and you know energy into. The microbiome test you're referring to, those are stool tests, like the GI map or those types of tests, right? Correct. Yeah. The majority of those are stool tests. I think we have Zoe, we have GI map. There's some others that are out there. I think Viome is another company and those companies, I mean, they're trying. And so hopefully we have it in the future, but it, again, it's a little misleading because if you look at the data, it's their own. And and usually there's no studies. (laughs) It's really more, they're trying to use what we know in science and then translate it to what they could replicate in a a, a test at home. But even in, in research and in clinical research, like the amount of like chances of contamination in a sample or just kind of the amount of precision that's needed to even be able to map. And we can map, we can map the small intestinal microbiome. We can map the the colonic microbiome and then even compare it to stool. They're all different. So even stool is different, but what they do in a clinical setting to be able to do that is so much more advanced than what's being done with these other tests. And so there's a very high chance of inaccurate information in these tests currently. It's just not proven. And so Mm -hmm. that's the big key there is that it's not proven, nor do we really know what to do with it. The A healthy microbiome, and this is where probiotics also come into play, is that a healthy kind of microbiome profile, like what that means hasn't been established. We actually don't know. We know there are certain kind of, we call phylum of bacteria microbes, meaning kind of that larger, broader scale that are known to be more healthy or maybe not healthy, 
but we don't actually know. And, and likely that's even going to be different based on where you're located in the world and, mm-hmm. and your environment. And so there's probably going to be a huge variety of what healthy profiles are. And so again, some of these tests will tell you, you have a dysbiotic profile or healthy profile, but we don't know what that means. Right. And that doesn't take into play, like your environment, your culture, you know, kind of your genetics and history in terms of like where, where you live, because even like uh, industrialized areas versus kind of less industrialized areas, there's a difference in microbiome diversity there and likely less industrialized areas or have a healthy or microbiome profile than those of us in more industrialized worlds. And so it depends on that too. So there's a lot to it that I think is beyond what's shown in marketing. <laughs> Yes. And everyone has pathogens, right? Everyone has bad bacteria in their gut. So this is a lot of it is fear-based in getting people to really worry about what's happening in their body where where much of it is fairly, you know, perfectly normal, actually, I should say. Yes. And just killing. I mean, we're we're at a place where I think, you know, not, I wouldn't even say decades ago, but when you know we were younger, and this is what has led to a lot of the IBS prevalence now, is that we used to think we needed to kill everything with antibiotics, right? Now we're in a new era where it's killing everything with herbals and this idea of like we need to get rid of, get rid of, get rid of. And it sounds a lot like what it used to sound like with the antibiotic craze. And it makes you wonder, you know, it's like, well, if we keep trying to wipe out, you know, what we call the bad bacteria without knowing how to truly support that with diet and lifestyle and other interventions, could we end up, you know, worse than than we are now, you know, in the next decade. And and that's a really important conversation that's not being had, I think, in a lot of these spaces and something I'm cautious of, because I know, you know, we want to feel better and there's a lot of, of stuff out there that is helpful but we also have to know, okay, well, what's the science behind it? What's the reasoning behind it? And what are the outcomes of this? Because yeah. short-term outcomes and long-term outcomes are very different. Yeah, it's it's complex. Yeah. I wonder also with the hand sanitizers and Clorox wipes yes. and everything post-COVID, that must have an impact, which we'll hear about in years. But, you know, that's yeah. another conversation. That's true. Yes. <laughs> Okay. So I want to wrap up. I just want to get your final kind of tips about building your microbiome through the diet. If you can give us like three or four things that people can get started with. We know probiotics are not the way to go. We don't need a stool test. We don't need food sensitivity testing. What are some things that everyone can do? Yes. So if you look at the science, what's the most evidence-based right now, but what we know works is fiber quantity and fiber diversity. And so the first thing I would do is start with your fiber quantity. Fiber is found in plant foods, most of them in their whole food form, you know, whole grains, legumes, beans, peas, and lentils, nuts and seeds, fruits and vegetables. Truthfully, mostly in your grains and your nuts and seeds in that world, you're going to see the most fiber quantity in legumes than you're going to see in your fruits and vegetables. So I would start with making sure you have good quantity of fiber and you could, you know, measure this. And, you know, there's a, an app called chronometer where you can look at nutrient analysis. If you want to get all specific about, you know, grams, the recommendation is 25 to 35 grams higher for males. So you might get up to, you know, 40 to 50 grams of fiber. Most people are around 15 to 20 grams. So most mm-hmm. people need to increase. So you can try to hit for that gram amount or simply look at your actual diet. And with the meals you're eating every day, whether it's three meals or five meals or two meals, like whatever that looks like, do you have a whole grain, a fruit or vegetable, and maybe some version of nuts and seeds included, right? Mm -hmm. And where can you add more quantity? So larger portions of vegetables or add in a grain, maybe add in some ground flax seed or some, you know, seeds like pumpkin seeds as a crunch on the top, where can you add a little bit more quantity? Once you've gotten your quantity up, the next step is diversity. This means how many different plant foods are you eating? This has been shown to directly impact the diversity of your microbiome, which combats dysbiosis. It's the opposite of dysbiosis. And so what you want to do is look at where's my diversity and try to get creative with adding more. So if you have berries in the morning, blueberries, can you have mixed berries where it's blueberries and raspberries and strawberries? If you are adding the pumpkin seeds, could you do a little mix of pumpkin seeds and sunflower seeds and flax seeds, right? How can you get a little bit more diversity, adding herbs and spices, like a lot of variety there, mixed grains, mixed legumes, mixed vegetables, 
that's going to directly impact your diversity of your microbiome. So those are the two places I would say to start. And then you'll start to see, okay, do I need to modify based on symptoms? Right. Like, then we can get into that conversation, but that's di- directly going to impact the health of your microbiome. Okay, great. I think that's totally doable and it uses real food where every, not, you know, nothing specialty, everyone can find these foods. And I think that's, that's excellent. Erin, I really appreciate all the knowledge and expertise that you shared today. I have a few rapid fire questions for you just for fun. Yeah, let's go. Are you ready? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right, let's do it. If you could go to dinner with any famous figure, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, man, that is a phenomenal question. That is a very hard question. (laughs) I know, I totally put you on the spot. How do I answer that question? Oh, I mean, probably Bono. I think. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Done amazing work for the world. Probably has amazing stories. So rapid Bono. Yeah, totally. Cool personality all around. I'm with you on that. What food do you have to have every single day? Or is there some chia seeds? I think they're my power food right now, but yeah, chia seeds and chocolate. (laughs) Okay. Yes. If you weren't a gut expert, what would you be? Oh man, that's a, that's a question I ask myself all the time. (laughs) I love running a business. I think I would still be an entrepreneur, but if I could really choose and money was not a problem ever, I would just be a stay-at-home dog mom. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. And the last one, what's one healthy habit you think is totally underrated, not talked about enough? Walking. Okay. Yeah. I think it's getting attention, but I think outside of exercise, outside of burning calories, outside of that walking. Okay. Yeah. So underrated. And I think it would change everyone's lives. If we were all mandated to walk enough every day, I think our lives would completely change. I totally agree. Okay. Erin, I want to give you the opportunity to share where people can find you, continue learning from you and work with you. Yeah. So the best place to connect with me online would be Instagram. ErinJudge.rd is my handle. All things IBS, poop, try to make it as easy to understand as possible. So definitely connect on there. We do have a free course that is kind of a starter to getting started with us or working with us. It's called the IBS fundamentals course, and I'll provide the link for that. It's also always in my social media, but that will walk you through the causes of IBS, how to understand your symptoms and kind of some basics around that. If you want to go a step further into better understanding of IBS itself, what it is and not. And then we do the way that we work with our clients. We have a one-to-one program, myself and other dietitians on my team. We do specialize in IBS and digestive disorders. You can reach out to me at any time if you want to talk about that. And then we also offer a membership that has more of a self-learning module for that. So science-backed holistic care for IBS and all digestive disorders. And so if you want to dig a bit deeper and get some of that guidance in a little bit more of a lower cost accessible place, our membership may be a good fit. Okay, great. I'll link to everything in the show notes so people can easily find it. And thank you so much for this great conversation. I learned a lot. I know my listeners probably did as well. So thank you. I appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) 